Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... I'm Ted Gucci. I'm at Florida Atlantic University. It used to be at Lancaster University in England and uh, before that elsewhere in the U.S. Thanks so much for uh, having me today. It's a great pleasure, Ted. It's wonderful. I'm thrilled to have you, and FAU is lucky to have you. Well, that's kind. So tell us, if you would, to kick off, what you've been thinking about, what's dynamizing you, preoccupying you, interesting you right now, Ted. Yeah, one of the challenges for me has been it's um, I'm kind of a bit of a squirrel. I get drawn into lots of different directions. Um, and so there are lots of different projects I'd like to be doing and things that I'm doing. But the things that are underlining it kind of remain the same and, and tie them together. Um, I'm, I continue to be fascinated by um, Thompson's definition of ideology of meaning in the service of power and how journalism operates as a function of that. One of the papers that I'm working on uh, with my partner is uh, maybe a bit controversial for those in, in journalism studies. Uh, so that's why I'm glad to be speaking about it from a cultural studies perspective is uh, looking back at the long form journalism that was done during the Epstein um, days, uh, looking at the um, me early days of the Me Too movement and really some of the journalism that's been celebrated as being um, uh, advocating for, for issues of equality and, and, and treatment, but actually going deeper into the texts and seeking out uh, some of the, the, the deeper kind of uh, problems that, that I think that we had at, at the time that I don't think we felt comfortable saying at the time, which was really kind of an uh, unfortunately an erotic undertone to the storytelling mm. uh, of these interactions between the, you know, Nasser, um, if, if anybody remembers um, these, these different folks who were, who were involved in those, in those days and, and really looking at how do we, without upsetting journalists, although God forbid, and without upsetting other journalism studies scholars, again, God forbid, how do we have a conversation that isn't a normative one about the type of storytelling that was being done, but more the deeper meanings of why it was necessary to have scenes like, and I will not be going into any graphic detail in this. He walked into the room in a, in a robe, having left the shower, she was standing in the corner and he approached, and it, and I'm not, and I'm just going to stop there, right? <laughs> because it gets a lot more graphic than that. And how do we, um, how do we really come back and navigate through the difficulties that are inherent in covering those types of stories surrounding sexual assault, um, but also our fascination uh, and our imagination with the storytelling that we feel is needed to address audiences and to right wrongs or to expose the issues in the benefit of the vulnerable. Certainly that can't be um, an effort that also moves us into very uncomfortable ways of talking about um, violence. And so that's a, that's kind of a touchy one for me because, you know, I'm of my own positionality in the world, um, but also you know, one of the challenges I've had for a long time is is this um, very normative social science uh, approach to understanding journalism and news, and it's sometimes media writ large, and a real 
loss to us where we don't have names like Bell Hooks more frequently, Angela Davis more frequently, uh, Gramsci, Foucault, um, the, the, the ones that so many of us spent time reading and thinking about. Um, but in fields like mine, where, you know, journalism studies is still very much focused on industry and connections with industry, uh, those kind of voices about problematizing um, really don't match with profit making. And so, so I think come into conflict um, and that influences our classrooms, that influences the swath of research that is done. And in a system that's focused on in, in dis different systems, aspects of promotion, tenure, livelihood, keeping your job, mass production of, of ideas. So you can see how I get drawn into 15 different um, directions, but I think it's keeping the underlying concerns of where are kind of the cultural studies um, approaches in journalism studies. Can we get there through uncomfortable conversations about journalism that we celebrated, that they made movies about, a prize culture took hold of and people were winning awards, uh, and we thought we were in kind of a cultural movement or moment, a turn, um, when I don't know that we really that we really were at those times. But certainly mm -hmm. um, going back and having critique, I think, is is helpful. And, and it's time to to kind of pound that one into the into the computer, get those ideas out and, and get that one done. So that's kind of what's um, on my mind. It's interesting you say that, Ted. If I can do a little bit of pathetic product placement, I've got a book about mm -hmm. to come out called Why Journalism? Question mm -hmm. mark. And when it was first being considered for publication, it was rejected from a journalism series um, because it um, criticised the BBC. Oh, dear. Which obviously you can't do. Mm. But quite apart from that, it was published in the end by the same house, but not in that series. It was initially criticised because it didn't cite enough journalism studies. <laughs> and yeah. I found that hysterical because journalism studies really is a parthenogenetic enterprise of yeah. backslapping. And that's true, I think, at the level of academic reproduction, but also, as you say, due to its consanguinity with the industry. And, yeah. of course, let's be frank, it's a difficult time for both parties where in the U.S., the undergrad major that most people regret having chosen is, guess what, J yeah. School. Yeah. And when, of course, the Bureau of Labor, that, there's one word in English I can never get right, statistics. statistics. The Bureau of Labor statistics, I always have to pause, apologies to you, Ted, and to listeners, tell us that, you know, journalism salaries are going down, journalism jobs are going down, jobs in what? academics love to call strategic communications, but is really public relations, jobs are going up and salaries are going up. And that's where our students are going to end up. Yeah. So I do think there, there's a, a multiple crisis there. And I suspect that leads quite apart from other tendencies you've identified to a valorization of two forms of hegemonic masculinity within US journalism. One mm. is so-called new journalism, and the other is so-called investigative journalism. These were very much white male dominated, and they often had so-called erotic or certainly bravura heterosexist norms 
compelling them, right? Or so it seems to me when I look back on them, from the sort of optic that you're talking about, I think, today, where we can be more critical. Well, I think we need that space and that distance. I mean, and, and you know, when, when you sit, you, the, the difficulty for me sometimes is when I sit and I write these things uh, or with my partner, you know, writing it together. And, you know, I was always trained to think think about the journals in advance. Like, where do you want this to go? Right. And 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 then, you know, is it a Q1 journal? Is it all these different structures um, instead of where are the people that I want to have you know, where, where do I want to be where people are reading it and engaging with it? And it's it's just very disappointing. There's a lot of good, you know, you always have to say there's a lot of good scholarship out there. People, I'm, I'm not saying, you know, other scholars um, are just taking things at face value. I think it's a much larger structural issue that, that we have. But when you sit there, it's, it can be a little paralyzing, right? Because I know what reviewer one and two and three, both, all of them are going to say, I mean, I'm a I'm an associate editor for journals and practice, a position I love, and it was a journal I first practiced, you know, published in. And I'm not expecting that to be, you know, a cultural studies bastion, you know, where where people go to have those conversations. So I I, I understand where I where I am with that. But it is really interesting when I read, and I'm not divulging anything that's that's private or or proprietary here. But when you when you read through those, and I've done that for about five or six years now, and you hear. Yeah, I'm just hearing the voice. I don't know whose voice it is, but I'm hearing the same sort of God voice when I look through a lot of these reviewers where people are saying, why are you blaming journalists for X, Y, and Z? Why are you blaming journalists for X, Y, and Z? When when a scholar is simply trying to problematize, right, and complicate and and, and not making it personal about the, the journalist or about the news organization, um, a lot of it really comes back when you start to take on things like the New York Times, Right. You get that same sort of pushback about the BBC of this is the perfect, you know, this is perfect journalism. This is what we need to do. It can always be better and people need to pay for it. And it's like, I just don't know, you know, if first of all, you know, peer review is is everything we think it is. That's a whole nother podcast. But I think um, I'm I'm missing and I have for a very long time some of some of the works that are a little bit more cultural. And I'm, and I was really turned on to it by, you know, Dan Berkowitz's um, edited volume now, I don't know, 2011 that was, I don't remember when that was, uh, which was an edited, you know, as a reader. So it was looking at work that had already been published, but he's positioning it, uh, cultural meetings of news where he came from the first uh, edited volume of social meetings of news. and I don't think that that book really ever got as much attention as it really should have, because the the, the collection of the work in there, while, while not strictly cultural studies, certainly was one that was looking at culture, not about like workplace culture for journalists, which is fine stuff to study, not, not just about issues of inequality, about who gets covered and how the story was framed. All that stuff is really interesting and helpful, too. But from a, a, a theory building uh, aspect. I mean, I'm, I'm working on finishing a piece now about meta uh, meta journalistic discourse. These, you know, and, and we're trying to critique it, right? We're trying to say it may not be what you think it is, or it's more than you think it is. But I see every six, seven, eight months a new trend of something coming out in journalism uh, studies area, digital journalism studies. That it's it's just uh, we're just kind of chasing tails a little bit, and I'm wondering where the deeper thinking is. And engaging in a, a further mythologization 
One yeah. of the things that I find uh, frustrating and fascinating, paradoxical about journalism, is that on the one hand, they rabbit on about themselves all the time. They are meta-journalistic constantly with their self-mythologizing, but they're the worst interviewees always <laughs> because at some point, having crapped on about this is what journalism is, this is what we try to do, they then suddenly realize when they're in front of somebody else that they're not supposed to make them the story. So, yeah. Well, that's a, that's that's an interesting <laughs> thing at this paper, and, and not to get too far into the weeds, but it's um, we're, we're we're borrowing some very dangerous language from uh, manifest and latent when we're talking about uh, language, and so that that obviously gets readers to think certain ways about um, approaches, methodologies, epistemologies. But um, where what, one of the papers that we're, we're trying to finish up now is really looking at. Um, Cover, it, was, it was looking at the Osaka um, tennis star when uh, when she s- said a couple of years ago, we're not going, I'm not going to be doing press conferences anymore because they're emotionally damaging uh, to me and they make me feel certain ways. And so we, you know, people would look at um, meta journalistic discourse through it, maybe around that in terms of interviews with journalists or um, journalistic source sources writing to each other in, in trade publications or on blogs or on social media. But we actually kind of went through the coverage itself and found that meta-journalistic uh, discourse, if we must use that that phrase that seems to, to still have its legs under it, um, was really embedded in the very core of the storytelling. And and so, it, I mean, it doesn't make sense unless you read the paper, I suppose, because it's still something that's um, working itself out in my head. But it's the way that journalists talk about themselves is so much deeper than just sitting and in, in kind of bloviating for a day or or doing a workshop and, and making some connections or working through a hypothetical, which a lot of us have done these types of things to understand how journalists think and and, and build knowledge it's a lot deeper than that. It's a culture. I mean, it's connected to our culture. It's connected to the, the things surrounding us. It's connecting, it's connected to the times that we're in. Um, and, and I just, I think if things are a little bit more complicated than, than we make them again, I'm not blaming anyone. I'm not saying I'm, I, you know, I know all the answers. I'm just saying, I think, unfortunately we're in systems where we're forced to, put out new ideas, uh, you know, all the time. And I don't know that there are such things as new ideas. I think there are those things that we haven't unpacked enough. And, and, and that's where the richness comes in. Yes. And one of the things that troubles me is that successive new norms are meant to be the essence of journalism, big data, artificial intelligence. And before that, it was so-called economics, but of course, only one kind of economics the kind of nonsense that I was taught in college, mm, not yeah. political economy. Right. And I worry a lot about that. I worry that journalists are being told that there is one way of understanding data, that data are not things that you go by walking down the street, looking at people, talking to people, and reading data that come from the US government, which produces a wealth of really fantastic economic information. Mm but journalists rarely write about. It is yeah. the, the pseudo data created by some academic economists, but especially think tanks, be they yeah. right or left wing. And the combination within US journalism of being in many ways anti-intellectual, but also loving popular public intellectuals in think tanks who are mostly failed scholars 
is astounding mm. to me. Anyway, yeah. I, I'm well, talking I, much give, too much. Go ahead. Can I, Go ahead. One, can I be transparent about one thing? One other issue that I'm doing is um, I'm working on a, you're, you're going to get a kick out of this, especially because of what we were just talking about in my own critiques of what we're talking about. Um, and I'll explain why I'm doing it, but I'm, you know, nonetheless, I'm doing it. Um, we're, we've started a, a political polling lab in our in our school here. Look at this, right? How how the world is a circle, right? So you go out and you complain and you critique and you write about it and you think about it, and then you start to participate in it. And my role, I think, is to try to um, is to try to bring in a, a kind of an outsiders like. Because I've written about myself and I and I feel myself that a lot of political polling, for instance, and I think this is relevant, what we're talking about here in the United States and the, you know, just a couple months away from really when the general election is going to kick up here for, for president. Um, it, it, I think it's become a, a relevant time to, to critique this. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. And, and it's and it's and it's also polling that's revolving around a rigged system that allows for gerrymandering and district redistricting and keeping, you know, felons and ex-felons out of the, the polls and, you know, all of the things that, that we know. So when we, I love when we talk about the systems rigged, people are okay with it being rigged for a certain amount of time in a certain way, but not, not, <laughs> they can't imagine it could be rigged any further. They just, it, it, the, the system is, is the problem. And I just, so I'm, I'm you know, there's a, there's a balance that I'm trying to find also between how do we do these things that do help um, students get jobs, you know, help students uh, understand data, help students uh, create, you know, knowledge or, or try to, to have some, some power over, over that construction, um, but also not fall into the trap, right? I mean, you talked about the U.S. government loves to create data. I love when journalism, you know, I see, I see the, the news stories. The United States has created 35, you know, 350,000 new jobs this quarter i'm just making it up and it's like well what kind of jobs do you think those are like what counts as a job like i you know and and the and the news story never tells you that it never says what you know here's how we're operationalizing job here are the benefits and compensation that go with it here that it's just look at our economy and that's not a way to talk about the economy absolutely well if you go back 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 ted to before the Second World War, before the Depression, really, the economy was not treated in the anthropomorphic way that it came to be mm. discussed mm. in the bourgeois press. The bourgeois media did not say the economy is ill, the nation's sick, mm. the economy's strengthening. This this didn't exist. Yeah, this didn't exist. The story was: this is where the wealth is. This is what the workers are getting. Yeah. This is the state of unemployment. Yeah. Anyway, moving yeah. away from that, um, if we could, Ted, but looking at some of your other work that's already out there, you've done quite a bit on the political process. And specifically over the last 10 years, I guess, when Donald J. Trump has been such an epic storyteller yeah. in United States politics. And of course, thanks to his oligarchic network, mm. a massive influence on yeah. fellow right-wing populists stealing from the working class in the name of the working class mm. right across Europe. Mm. Mm. Could you tell us a bit about, there are maybe three books you've done, edited and written on these topics? 
Could you tell yeah, us a bit about that yeah. work? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm really excited that that two of those were um, were, were edited pieces, but 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 and and some of some of the same authors came back for the second uh, for the second one to try to kind of speak to themselves to talk back a little bit to to maybe some of the things that they thought when it first came out. I don't know if it's egg on the face, but the second one is it has has a subtitle of after Trump. Now that means I may have to do a third one and say here's what we really meant by that. I did try to articulate what I meant by post-Trump, that that Trump wasn't going to be, uh, Trumpism wasn't going to go away, right? But um, so I didn't want to use post-Trump. So then after Trump, and I'm like, ah, crap. Uh, Well, how about just when you thought it was safe to go back into the polling booth? I mean, it it is, um, or to go anywhere. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's, I have to say, you know, I've, I've, again, I come from great, privilege in life um, in in many ways that when I say this, it may sound kind of silly, but it was exhausting. It's been exhausting um, following this again from more of a critical approach. Um, You know, there's been a lot of really great reporting about the stuff that the day-to-day, what court cases, what's up and down, who's going where and all that stuff's fascinating. Um, But I think Trying to to work through that to get to like some of the deeper levels of I mean of course we knew that issues of gender and sex were were things that um, that uh, made its way <laughs> into really nasty conversations, um, but there are still some po- so, so I I think the thing that I like to explain is that a lot of people misunderstand I think how Donald Trump rose. To, to power, mm-hmm. uh, if, if I can use that language. It, and, I, and, and I think this is also a part, people think it's a top-down sort of situation. And I, and I think part of that is our scholars go easily to the New York Times, to CNN, to things that are in databases, the Washington Post, the BBC, the Guardian, places where you can access the text easily. Um, but they don't go to what is, you know, becoming a greater challenge local media this 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 push um you know so so that local media wasn't isn't just a source for civic engagement and for notions of democracy and for you know information um unity uh but it but it's also a site for understanding uh, a people Right. And and when we lose that press, I'm not I'm not going to go out and harp about like how we need local press. And I think that's pretty clear. But and people, other people do it better. But I think we're also under understanding that we're missing out on under, understanding our communities and, and individuals. So long story short, long time ago, if we remember, right, we had fights in local cities across the United States um, pre uh, the pre Clinton talking about Ten Commandments in public parks, talking about prayer in schools, talking about gendered bathrooms, these other types of things that, that were coming up. And I may I may use language that we used back then that I just don't remember. Um, I don't think we called them gendered bathrooms, but we had debates about, about these, these public bathrooms and prayer in school and these same types of debate. We had the Clinton administration where conservatives felt very pushed uh, away, uh, family values, we weren't having conversation about prayer in school. I mean, there were a lot of these these things that were fundamental, um, you know. And then and then following that, we had our our war on terror, right? So that that moment where we thought we were going to be able to get 
some or where conservatives thought they were going to be able to get some sort of action and movement politically on these topics were taken over by a race. I mean, so it still fed the right wing, right? It still fed the, the right wing monster because it gave us the racist war on terror, Western hegemony, uh, U.S. exceptionalism, like all these different things that that fed some of that right wing interest, but not the local stuff. Right. So you saw these conflicts that were brewing at city council levels, school board levels, county government, all the way up to state houses. And it was an anger of being dismissed and ignored, I think, by media, I think, by politicians and kind of how the founding, quote unquote, I hate this term, but how the founding fathers intended democracy to be, as they put it together in the structure, as being combative. I mean, it's not meant to be something where we all get along. It's meant to have this sort of tension looking over each other, right? And it's not supposed to always end up the way that you want it or the way that I want it, right? There's supposed to be a notion of compromise and there's supposed to be a notion of win, um, winning to, to some degree on, on multiple fronts. But long story short, I think that this was a trickle up effect where then it got into state houses and it got into governorships and you had places like Florida, Wisconsin, and Texas getting together along with right-wing think tanks, which you mentioned in PACs, to construct legislation across the board, right? So this was, but I think a lot of scholars miss that because they're only reading these national papers, right? They're not going in. And one of my fun things that I do is I just kind of pick um, a community maybe that I've never been to and I try and look up their newspaper and I see what are they writing about? What are they doing? Is there anything interesting going on here? So I think that we're at a point where um, a lot of us are just really tired um, from the whole last 10 years of following these types of, of issues. And I'm and I'm sad, not just because of the policies and what's happening to, to people, right? But I'm also sad that we're losing out on understanding the the notion of communities at local levels that can give us such wealth of understanding um, of, of how our systems are working or they're not, about who lives amongst us, right? And um, so it's been a very emotional, I know for a lot of the people, the last 10, you know, those last 10 years or, or, or a few less. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, it, they were, they were really fun projects, um, did a couple special issues surrounding it. And, um, I don't know where to go from here. I mean, I think that it's, that's kind of maybe why I'm moving into that polling space, because it gives me an opportunity to kind of ask, ask some questions, that can maybe move some agenda setting functions one way or another. But from a scholarly perspective, um, it has become so much, first it was post-truth and then it was mis and disinformation and then now it's AI. And I just feel like we can't just stick on, you know, like we, we don't have a constant um, thread that's connecting these things together, which I think would be, critical theory. I think it would be something a little bit deeper than here's now what's happening. And it's like, well, we're not journalists, right? We're scholars. And so we shouldn't just be reporting on what's happening repeatedly. I mean, the number of articles, and that's great. Everybody should publish what they want, but that have come across my desk in the last two weeks at the journal, just about AI is about 95% of them. And I'm just kind of like, what, what are we learning? Like, what are we doing? And I'll say one last thing about, about journal editing, which I might get in trouble for, is this is also after trying to diversify what we're trying to do with, with that journal, right? At the same time, we're trying to 
encourage publishing from from non-Western states, right? From non-Western parts of of the country. But do you know what the effect of that is? We have to deal with the ranking system, right? Of the journals. And I think that we're getting, I think we're getting hit a little bit because that doesn't mean that every issue you're going to recognize the names of the people who are coming across, right? They're names of people that you maybe have not seen before because they're, they're early career scholars or they work in a different country than maybe what, you know, some of the audience for the journal looks at and they're not citing it. So at the same time, we're trying to do, you know, God's work, right? <laughs> whatever it is, trying to bring in, you know, trying to set aside, trying to make space. That system is still punishing us by by moving our rankings up and down and, and probably a little bit further down. So I, that was a lot to kind of uh, unpack on you. But I see connections between a lot of these different aspects. And I think maybe that's also why I'm so exhausted from the Donald Trump era. If I could just have a break. Just a quick uh, footnote there. So you use the acronym PAC, and although the plurality of our listeners are in the US, the majority is not, just to say that stands for Political Action Committee. And that's part of the uh, barren yet fecund corruption of US political life. The Political Action Committee is a ways in which billionaires can give money to corrupt politicians and wield influence over them and over policies. And when I say corrupt politicians, I don't just mean people who take money for themselves. I mean people who take money for major interests that they then support automatically in Congress or in states' houses or whatever. In terms of the local journalism issue, one of the things that I go back to as an antidote to technocratic accounts is Jim Carey's work. And one Mm. of the things that Jim talks about is the humanness of everyday journalism in lots of very interesting and critical ways. No Marxist he, but he was uh, an economic historian and he was a Durkheimian. So the things Mm. that interested him were how money functioned Mm -hmm. and how ritual mattered. And one Mm. of the things that is lost with the rapid decline of local journalism in the U.S., is in my view not only connected to what you so accurately describe as a failure to report what Trump-like voters have been concerned about and are worried about now, but also has contributed to the historically low standing of journalists Mm -hmm. in US life. And that's because people don't know them. Mm -hmm. They don't meet them. Mm-hmm. All they know is that these bastards live in Chicago, New York, and L.A. Mm-hmm. And they yeah. say things or allow things to be said that these folks don't like. They're not the person down the corner. And I compare right. this to someone like, in the political sphere, Bernie Sanders. Yeah. When Bernie Sanders started, as we all know, as mayor of Vermont, and then its representative in the House, and then a senator, one of the things about him that you could see if you went to Vermont was that there were good old boy, gun-toting Republicans who loved him because they knew him, he listened to them, and he tried to get the resources that they needed. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Uh, Easier to do in a small state, of course, but nevertheless something that is really missing, I think, from the way in which a certain kind of local journalism managed to produce a real affinity with local culture and give voice to people such that because of not just technological change, it's also to do with proprietorial shifts in the United States. 
is now virtually silenced yeah. and something that is not being sufficiently addressed in the scholarly literature, although it is addressed by the profession itself in certain public studies, as you know. So moving away from that, that Trump question, one of the other concerns that you and your collaborators have considered is climate change and the media. I wonder if you could just run us through a little bit some of the work you've done there and what you think needs to be done now. Yeah, no, thanks. Uh, yeah, the the discourse around climate change is another space for um, looking at audience segmentation, right? So we can look at who who are the who are the listeners, the viewers, who are the people who are concerned. Uh, we understand then that the political advertising rhetoric, uh, you know, is going to surround sort of that that audience uh, desirability, but there are still um, larger ideological issues in there when we think about um, what our environment means to us. What is our environment? And I think one of the one of the challenges came when we started using the word sustainability, right? So a lot of this is in the language and the metaphors and the storytelling around our, our environment. Um, and the sustainability issue is we did a special issue, um, Toby, you contributed to to that um, with uh, Journal of Environmental Media, if I remember correctly, um, where we were we were writing about how sustainable how sustainability is just a really bad word, right? I mean, the, the the stuff that we're doing in this world cannot and should not be sustained, right? The if we look at different industries, fashion, if we look at um, maybe unfortunately, travel and um, our uh, fuel consumption. Uh, if we look at everything from what we consume ourselves and the animals that 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 we consume, and the treatment of those animals to the soil and uh, the pollutants that we're putting in as we raise those animals, I mean that 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 is not something we should be sustaining. I mean, these are not good, healthy things, and. Then we had words of adaptability, right? Okay, now we can get into a whole other semiotic analysis of, a, of, a, of adaptability if we want. But I think just like um, solutions journalism became a real um, hot term that a lot of people looked at and didn't necessarily think about whose solution, who's solutions for whom, right? Who are we writing to? Who are we thinking about? Solutions journalism still continues in my uh, reading of of things to be very focused on white elite uh, individuals, um, even when it's applied outside of those terrains, it's still through lenses of whiteness and professionalization of language uh, and ideas. Uh, the same is going on with the discussion about climate change. In fact, the term climate change itself is problematic, right? Certainly that is has its own operationalization, but we're really talking about global warming, aren't we? And the fact that we've moved away from talking about what's what's going on to our, our you know what's going on in our world, which is this global warming, and certainly that is still climate change, and climate always changes. We've we seem to go with an incorporation, right? I mean, this is like a Raymond Williams sort of we incorporate, right? We say, okay, you guys want to talk about global warming, let's call it climate change. 
uh, and and then we're then we're okay talking about it because now we're not actually talking about what's going on in the world, right? And then we get into the distracting conversation of right and left side saying, "Well, the world's changed its climate a million years ago, and it'll change its climate again in a million years." But that's not what we're talking about, right? So when we collectively agree somehow, or we we give in, we're incorporating. I mean, that's a basic <laughs> concept, right? And I just don't feel that. Um, we unpack these things enough. And someone would say, well, then just write an article about it um, or, you know, write a couple articles about it. But how do we actually change that that way of thinking? Um, and it's not going to come from a single academic article. It has to come from uh, collective action. But the system doesn't allow us to do those types of things because we have to work in a meritocracy, right? Where we don't get benefits. I I, I wanted to nominate um, one of our staff members for an award. And I was told, well, the other person um, in that same role would feel bad if, if we nominated one and not the other. And so we thought, okay, what if we did a team, right? But the application process doesn't allow for that. It allows for an individual well, that's not how we work, Toby. I mean, we're not doing this as individuals. We're doing this together for an hour as a team. Um, should should there not be some sort of recognition of that? So this isn't to be like, you know, really negative ninja uh, hour, but I, but I am concerned that we're so focused on our citation records, our H indexes, our, um, our pop, you know, not upsetting too many people, and when I work with uh, climate scientists, for instance, you know they walk a very they work walk a very uh, narrow line here between activism and pissing off uh, business, right? Because they have more money than my school does because we're communications and multimedia. Uh, we're not we're not science where we're getting funding from from these same sort of organizations and businesses. Um, so. You know, at 43 years old, what do I do with that for the next, if I'm, if I'm blessed enough, next 30 years, 40 years of my life? How do I how do I work within that system? And I think that that's why you're probably hearing a bit of um, rant sort of stuff from me is because I'm, I'm, I'm at that stage and I think my career and maybe my life and as a father and as a husband trying to figure out how do I continue to go down these these avenues of talking about critical approaches and cultural approaches um and not get not get burnt out because it it seems like those voices in my field just are not um heard very much let me give you another example i would love in discussions about um media trust which involve issues of political communication climate change communication um to hear to to see surveys if we must do surveys and and i and i have a I don't have necessarily a problem with that um of us black and african american populations i see pew and these other organizations i think i might have recently seen one such study there are populations that do not trust media and what they say about anything from police reports to where and why the fire happened, to what climate change or global warming is. No no wonder if it's global warming uh, or climate change. There's just a lack of trust, right? And that lack of trust is historic. But we don't seem to treat, we, we, we don't seem to treat people in that case through that segmentation. 
right? We don't look at those historical facts um, and those historical experiences. So I think that that's where my frustration comes in. We can do all of this work about uh, political communication and climate change communication. And what we try to do in, in our special issues was be a bit more inclusive and, and diverse with it. But if we're not intentionally, right, asking certain people certain questions in ways that are, you know, consent informed, right, and protective, um, but also participatory, I don't know what we're doing anymore. Now we're just now we're just publishing things to publish them. I, you know, those are just kind of my rants for a Tuesday morning. But I do see that connection between political communication, climate communication, ideology, uh, and journalism studies um, that may not have immediately anything to do with ChatGPT, which doesn't then get, um, you know, a top conference paper award. Yes, there's no doubt that there is a technological fixation in journalism studies of the last decade in particular, though it's always been an element. Been and I guess when it comes to the climate questions, one of the worst elements of US journalism of the last 30 years has been the laughable notion that there are two sides to everything and one is Thank democratic you. and the other is republican, one is liberal, one is conservative, Thank or you. one is yes, there's climate change and one is no, there right. isn't. And they've more or less dropped that. They've pretty much had to, apart from those outlets that are just straightforwardly anti-science. And that's a good thing. It shows that there are people who are capable of recognising scientific consensus. But the notion of what constitutes balance or objectivity is still deeply problematic. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the advances in the last three or four years in U.S. newsrooms is the recognition by hegemonic white men mm -hmm. that those doctrines have been used to exclude women and people of color yeah. and the disabled yeah. and numerous other groups from positions of power and not just positions of power in terms of the executive running of these institutions, but also of particular subject areas. Mm -hmm. So, as, as you know, African-Americans often being asked to write about black stories or sure. poverty yeah. or crime and not being asked to write profiles of X or Y political leader and mm -hmm. women being given the health, the health or education desk mm -hmm. and not the economics desk. All those sorts of things, I think, are terribly real and they definitely contribute to a lack of faith in these institutions on the part not only of journalists, but also of readers. And there's a spillover into academia's longstanding system of preferential job uh, offer, offers to people like me. Yep. And yep. the affirmative action that people like me have had informally and more or less formally for hundreds of years. Now, that's a... I think a major, major problem. And it's why when you are editing a journal and you're trying to do what you're doing, which is to include different voices, including international voices, yeah. you have to do a lot of recruiting because you have to show good faith that you mean That's it. Right. And that also, of course, comes, as you say, at a cost to the journal because you don't have good old boys writing their usual crap. 
Right. And then citing each other. Right? And citing I mean, each other. They'll instead go to, to someone that they know or that they've been a co-author on. And they'll, and this is every journal. It's not just, and, and you know, I know you're saying this too. It's, it's, it, this happens across the, uh, uh, across the board. I mean, I just unfortunately see it every day, um, which is maybe why I'm becoming a bit disillusioned. Um, with, with some of this is I've I've seen um, again not divulging anything proprietary or personal but I've seen the amount of visceral there's been a lot of visceral reaction to people taking critical positions particularly um, on issues of race and in, in interactions in U.S. newsrooms um, where people come back reviewers. And again, I am not suggesting anybody standing up for the peer review process as being uh, the the answer. I don't think any of us um, would would really want to have that great debate and be on that side of it. I don't know that we would win. Um, but I, where, where people say, I can't, you know, the, this author hasn't explained um, why uh, that racism exists in newsrooms, and. And you know, there's a, there's a critique there where you could say, could you could you explain a little bit more, or could you uh, certainly that's part of the process of of could you make it a better, a clearer thing? But let me tell you a quick story. When I was in PhD school at the University of Iowa, um, I was writing about um, race and the community from a and, and how it impacted journalism and how journalistic storytelling was impacting kind of this influx of of populations from outside this white community coming in. Um, and, and settling in a particular neighborhood and building community there. And I was asked to come into a, a, socio, a social work a PhD or master's level class. It must have been a master's level class to talk about a documentary that had just um, come out called Black American Gothic. And we had had the documentarian there and she she presented her stuff. And so we were just going to have a, a group discussion about it. Long story short, they watched an hour documentary about racism in their community and these social work students came out and said, I didn't see any racism. And I said, well, what would you needed? What would you have needed to see and hear in order to say that there was racism in your community? And they said, well, I needed to hear a word that I'm not going to repeat. They never said it either. But it's, you know, it's a derogatory word that we all know or, or could could recite. And um, I said, oh, God, I hope none of you become social workers like that is not what it that is not what racism is. It's not, it's not something that just appears when you hear a word or you see a, a site that to yourself means that, right? You just had an hour and a half of people talking about how they've, how they've lived experiences. And I think, you know, journal journals are problematic in the sense that we're all coming from our own vantage points, which are still not our own vantage points. They're coming, we're, we're all in, indoctrinated to forms of dominant ideology, right? Like, we all don't have our own opinions on things, right? We've been we've been uh, constructed into certain ways of of thinking. That doesn't mean that you and I have to agree on things. We probably have very similar. Um, we can acknowledge certain certain things or certain codes, right? We can recognize these things. And I think the problem is um, journal articles around this. They want to make it easy to understand how their research fits in with somebody else's research, right? And therefore, that research is valid. But when you have different voices coming from different ideological positions, it's probably not going to make sense to us, right? If I'm reading something from a completely different uh, experience, it's going to take me a lot of work to try to understand or appreciate what that person is trying to say. And I don't know that we're spending enough time 
giving new voices or you know, simply voices that have been there for a long time, but that we're just hearing the, the adequate space in our own intellect to not give it an authority, but to recognize its inherent authority. So we still have a lot of work to do. I think journalism is the same thing. When you're, when you're a police reporter and you go out and you ask, a, you know, there's, a, there's something that went down in a neighborhood, but not as a reporter, I knew everybody thought that I was going to be either someone with children, children and families, I was going to be a police officer or a reporter. And in each of those situations, taking something from that neighborhood, a child, money, your freedom, or in my case, all of your information, right? Mm. Everything that I could get you to tell me. And what are you getting in return for that? So there's a lot of epistemological work, I think, that we have to do um, while we're also trying to publish five articles a year. Uh, I just don't know how to do it. Well, you're an amazingly productive scholar, Ted. I've got um, a couple more questions for you. Sure. And then I'd like to throw it to you to subtract from or add to anything we've already discussed. Does that sound okay? Of course. Yep, great. So here's my question one. I've just arrived at Florida Atlantic University. I'm 24. Uh, I was uh, summa cum laude from a fancy university. I want to do a doctorate with Prof T. I knock on the door. I have some cake or cookies or tea or coffee, maybe a beer as mm. part of my offering to the Prof, not to corrupt him, but no. to friend him and yes. gain his answer to this question. What should I do? How do I get, what should be my first steps in doing a doctorate in your field? Mm. Wow. I think um, that's a great question. First of all, it would be a strawberry daiquiri. That would be, that would be the, that would be the <laughs> of requirement. Course. Why uh, did I even need to ask? My no, I don't. For this no, bottle of water? What am I going to do with a bottle of water? Um, I think I would like to have more conversation. I mm -hmm. think slowing things down asking questions. What is it that you really want? What do you think this is going to be? I think it's having discussions. Um, I think there's, of course, needing to have, you know, certain uh, access to, to information, right, and, and other folks' knowledge to, to make some arguments of, of your own. But I you know, I get a lot of emails from people because they still they, they do want to do doc, doctoral work. And so they, they say, would you be my supervisor? Would you? And this is a very still kind of a British holdover sort of thing. And I don't think the students necessarily realize that's not the same system here. But when I read kind of their form formulaic sort of uh, letters, it's very much rooted in a lot of uncertainty. Right. And mm -hmm. a lot of mm -hmm. um, anxiety. And, and I appreciate that. And what I would like to do is say, well, what do you want to do with it? I think a lot of people think a doctoral work means going into being a professor. And, and we know that that's not the only option. Yeah, yeah. Um, we need people who have these transferable skills elsewhere as well. So for me, it would be, let's set aside 45 minutes and have a conversation. Um, see what you really want to do. Let me put you in touch with great people like, like, like Toby Miller and others um, and have, have discussion. And I know that that may be a, a cop-out, but I don't think we do enough of that. No, no, no. I, I quite agree. And here's my next question. 
I am a big fan, after 20 years working in it more, of the US doctoral system by contrast with the British one, because my view is that it produces better rounded people with broader minds who get lots of teaching experience mm. at the same time as they can focus on their studies and really get a cohort of scholars around them that they yeah. can learn from and with. So there's my take. What's your take having emerged from one system into the other and then back to the first one? Now, I have to be careful with this because I have people I care about who uh, have, have done and are doing their, their doctoral work in, in, in England, for instance, or in a system similar to that, including my partner. And so I, I want to be supportive of her. Um, she's gone above and beyond in, in many ways as she's finishing up her, her PhD there. But I have to agree with you. I don't think the issue – let me say this. I think the issue that I have with – at least my experience at different, you know, with different committees and whatnot. Uh, we don't even have committees, but in different situations in the UK, um, and this isn't a generalization across the board. However, it's so much focused on the access of the individual student um, to time, to resources, yeah. to ideas, and to staff. And I have to say, I am disgusted when I see uh, cultural documents or social documents, and I've looked at many of them um, in, in in Britain, where, so I'm, I'm now I'm expanding it a little bit, um, where you only get 50 minutes with a, with a supervisor. I don't even like the word supervisor. I think they should be advisors. You don't have a committee of people sitting around you who can help you with the different aspects yep. that go into yep. making this work. Um, and, you know, I helped start a, a university in Manchester when I was at, at Lancaster and putting together those classes. And yes, they were undergraduate classes. I don't even remember their percent, but the majority of the time was independent learning. I don't know that that's really helpful. Um, I don't think that doctoral students learn without having to balance the intellectual labor of teaching, as you mentioned, or doing research, doing independent research and doing coursework. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot missing in, get, in, in training how to implement that intellect. Um, that's, that, that, that's, that's my thing. I, are there inequalities and problems in the U.S. Uh, doctoral system? Absolutely. Uh, similar access, you know, uh, access to funding uh, is is one, and bullying and other, you know, the things that happen in institutions that, that yeah. we just don't do a very good job of 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 addressing. So there certainly are those inequalities, um, but I would say, I I am a bit preferential to to our system here, <laughs> and nobody would be surprised by an American saying that. But yeah. Last thing then, Prof T, if I may, is to invite you to conclude by pointing to areas that we discussed, but not enough, or we didn't discuss. Is there more product placement from you that we could get? <laughs> well, I'm going to end with a with a story that I think is, is short, but um, is one that's really meaningful to me that happened when I was about 15. I started working in, in newspapers when I was 14, 15 years old, something like that. Um, and, you know, cut class in high school to go do reporting, all the fun things. I remember coming home one day and in our newspaper, which came out twice a week, we had a 
page or two that was called correspondence. These were correspondence pages. And there were people who lived out in the country, we were in a rural area, and they would write in letters. Uh, my my nephew Johnny came in from New York and we had rhubarb pie and we did this thing. And then I went, you know, these types of stories about country life or about mm-hmm. what was going on in people's lives. And I remember sitting in my kitchen as an upstart 15-year-old or something like that and saying, oh, I could do such a better job. Um, if they if I got rid of these pages, I could tell stories, I could do reporting. And my mom, God bless her, a you know, Baptist uh, white Zinfandel drinking lady who who I love dearly, um, says um, words I won't repeat uh, in the podcast, but basically told me to saw it off, right? <laughs> she said something that was really important to me. Yeah. She said, mm-hmm. it is not your newspaper. And that's stuck with me now for 30 mm-hmm. something years yes. where yeah. I'm like, it'll stick with me. It'll stick this with This isn't for me. This isn't yeah. about me. No. This, this no. has to be something more. And while it might sound cheesy and corny, I think the reason why I sometimes, I also have a disability, so I, I communicate orally different ways sometimes and it can get a bit rambled, is because there's that passion that this this stuff isn't mine. Like, this isn't about me. My students aren't about me. My publications are about my job, not about me, right? The, the about me is what influence can it can it possibly have? But going back to that moment, you know, how could I have made those pages better? Could I have given them spaces for images? Could I have given them more pages? Could I have, you know, gone and had pie with them just just to get to know them better? And I think that idea of it's not about us, it's not for us, is something that we could really benefit understanding in scholarship. Um, And I think I'll just leave it there. Beautifully put. Prof. Ted, thank you very, very much. I appreciate it, Toby.